couple of things first. Of course, I've already mentioned on a day like today when we don't have uh, the time to text, send out a text, we expect that you'll use your own judgment. Apparently, many have. And they will be ashamed to realize how good the roads are that didn't come. But uh, <clears throat> secondly, we're facing, of course, as usual with that, and, and then some, a little bit of threats of various sicknesses, flus, etc. And I would ask that you would demonstrate your love <clears throat> for the congregation by not coming if you have something or have symptoms. Same with bringing your children if they're ill, because especially... Some of your brethren have a low or sometimes even no immunity to these things. And it can really, what can be something like a passing cold to someone can be a devastating illness to someone else. So I just want to urge you to take care and enjoy at most a fist bump. Greet one another with a holy fist bump or even a glance and a nod and a smile for just this season. And that's just the pastor in me, so don't forgive me for it. Lord, we have drawn near to you. Now draw near to us. Today, the word of the cross, the doctrine of the mystery, part 15. We're ready to have some series that are going to morph into other series very soon. I gave you a little hint of that with today's offering. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to explore quite a bit of this passage from 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 2, 5, I found that there is a, a section there because it begins with a theme and it ends, rounds up with a theme in 2, 5, 1, 17 to 2, 5. This is my translation from the Greek text. And I think you'll see how the word of the cross relates to the doctrine of the mystery. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17 Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to evangelize. That's more accurate than most translations because the word euangelizo is used here. So it's a little more poetic, of course. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to evangelize. And I take this very seriously for my own calling from God. And not with clever words, which would empty the cross of Christ. Hostaros to Christu. This cross of Christ, S-T-A-U-R-O-S. This little root word, S-T-A-U, is extremely important. That's where we get the word instauration. The cross of Christ is emptied of its significance if you try to communicate it with clever words. Verse 18, you see, Paul said, the word of the cross, that's halagos hostaru, is considered foolishness by those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, that's experiencing the salvific power of the cross, it is the power of God itself. For it is written, this is Isaiah 29:14. I will make the wisdom of the experts to perish and the intelligence of the clever to be set aside. I will destroy the wisdom of the clever and hide the insight of the intelligent 
says Isaiah 29:14. I'm not sick, incidentally, just a little frog in the throat. I will destroy the wisdom of the clever and hide the insight of the intelligent is the prophecy of Yahweh through Isaiah. And Paul applies this word as he well should and as we should. He applies this word to the word of the cross because what God has done in the Christ event by the resurrection of the crucified Messiah cannot be explained by scientism, rationalism, empiricism, or historicism. In the way Paul wrote this little passage, he is showing that the perishing, as they're called here, are precisely those who rely on the wisdom and the intelligence that is generally accepted and followed by the world, as we call it. Wisdom and intelligence that's sometimes called common sense. But by being that often betrays a bias, a common sense bias, that automatically stiff arms truths that can't be empirically, immediately verified by experiment or rationalistically or scientifically unexplainable realities, those who are rooted only in so-called common sense have a bias that stands apart from these truths, doesn't want to hear it. And they pride themselves in, I'm, I, I have common sense, they say. The problem with common sense, as Lonergan said, is it's all too common. Some consider the word of the cross more negatively than just a kind of foolishness that you can dismiss out of hand. Today, there's a very strong rising trend in our culture of militant atheism. Militant atheists consider the word of the cross not just to be nonsense, but to be irresponsible and dangerous nonsense. Something that ought to be expelled altogether from society along with its advocates. And however, it's the sage and the scholar, those who are held up to be the intelligentsia, and the debater of this age who will actually be absent in the next age. When the next age will have come in its fullness, the word of the cross will be the loud wisdom everywhere. And the wisdom of this age will be silent, rendered dumb. Now, it's not that these sages and scholars will not ultimately be saved, for in Christ all will be made alive, but that the wisdom that they relied on in this present evil age will be non-existent. When the mystery of God that was hidden and silent for ages is fully and universally manifested, then it will be the wisdom of this age that will be silent. And the intelligence of this age that will be hidden as the mystery for ages was hidden and silent. 
So consider 1 Corinthians one twenty. Paul says, where is the sage? He's already in that next stage, as we are. Where's the sage? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? We could say today, where's the woke? Where's the supposedly socially and ideologically elite? It considers the rest of people to be despised, as we're going to see. The unwashed masses. Today we heard, and people will pay more attention to what a woodchuck says than what a preacher said. I call the groundhog a woodchuck. And a woodchuck is what you call Vermonters if you're from New York State. I happen to be born in New York State, but I identify as a Vermonter. And we were called, in fact, we were called blankety-blank woodchucks when my Uncle Charles was driving through New York City when we went to a Yankees game in 1961 by a taxi driver. Blankety-blank, he saw the green license plate. It looks very strange in the middle of New York City where everybody is intelligent and elite and hip. Hip then woke today. Not awake. Awake and Christ will shine on you. That's a different kind of woke. But there's a lot of this going around now, this despising of others and the great unwashed. After all, we are the scholar, the debater, the sage. But where are they, Paul said? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world, the cosmos? For since by the very wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. God decreed, okay, the world will have a wisdom, but the world will not know me through its wisdom. That's the decree of God. That's the way it is. You're not going to get to know God by its wisdom. So Paul says, since by the very wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it didn't discover God through Plato or through Aristotle or through Isocrates or Socrates. It didn't discover God. You don't discover God. You don't discover God ultimately through nature, as it's called, or even through the witness of creation. You discover God in a crucified man hanging on a cross with a crown of thorns driven into his scalp. Arms outstretched, feet under which all the enemies will be placed, feet nailed to the cross. When you've lifted me up, you will know that I am. Period. John eight twenty eight, which I view as the central verse of John's gospel, not John three sixteen. John eight twenty eight. Since by the very wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through its wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the proclamation that we proclaim, which is the word of the cross. We keep proclaiming, that's habitually, Christ crucified, Christon estaromenon. To the Jews, a scandal. And to the non-Jews, 
foolishness. Now, just to give the sense of just how the Jewish scholars and pagan philosophers of the time viewed the proclamation of salvation through a crucified Messiah, consider what Justin Martyr wrote. He was a Christian apologist in the second century, born around 100 A.D., died around 165 A.D., and this, the despising of the cross was still evident among both Jews and pagans. He writes in his book called Dialogue 32.1 regarding Deuteronomy 21.23, and this is cited in Craig Coaster's commentary on Hebrews. He writes this. This is the Jewish viewpoint. But this so-called Christ of yours was dishonorable and inglorious. So much that the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him. For he was crucified. They called the last curse in the law, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is every person, everyone who hangs upon a tree. But to that, I would reply, well, yes, he did endure that curse, which says cursed by God, hupo thau, cursed by God is everyone who hangs upon a tree. But then I would say, no, this was not the last curse contained in the law. For later in Deuteronomy 27, 26, that Paul makes a big deal out of also in Galatians, Cursed is everyone who does not persevere in all the words of this law and put them into practice. Kind of a boomerang effect there. They wanted to call that curse on a tree, the last curse. So Jesus was indeed hung upon a tree. And as such, he became the curse of the law for everyone. Everyone. So when Christ was cursed, he was everyone. And when Christ died, all died. That's the point of Galatians 3.13. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And when Christ died in this way, everyone died with him to be raised with him in glory. A glory that makes the glory of this age to be zero. Sic transit gloria mundi. The glory of this world fades away very quickly. He became a curse, says Galatians 3.13, so that the blessing promised to Abraham would flow to all the nations and to all humankind. Took away the block of the blessedness of God. Also in Justin, this time in his writing called Apology 1.13.4, we have a sense of the Greeks' reaction to the gospel. He says this, pagans protested that it was sheer madness to put a crucified man in second place after the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of the world. Sheer madness. Well, first of all, the gospel doesn't put him second place to the unchangeable God. The gospel makes him equal to the unchangeable God. When Paul says that the Greeks considered the word of the cross to be foolish, moria, he was perhaps deliberately understating the accusation 
that in their view, it was sheer madness. And as I said today, there is a trend among not just atheists who will just live and let live. There's another brand of atheism growing, which isn't live and let others live. It's we must do away with Christianity so that our culture will be anything but Christian. Militant atheism considers the word of the cross not just nonsense, but harmful nonsense. We're going back to the Roman Empire when the charge against Christians was hatred of humanity. You must hate humanity to have a God who is crucified, is the logic. Of course, they ignore Christ in him having been crucified, who is now exalted and seated next to the majesty on high. And as such, he demonstrates the future of all humankind. For God's plan for all humanity is to crown us with glory and honor. But he does it only through the suffering of his son, as we're going to see in another series coming up, which may start very soon. When Paul says that the Greeks, therefore, considered the cross to be foolish, he may have been understating it a little bit, just to get the point across. Justin's presentation, Justin Martyr's presentation of the Jewish objection, too, showed that from that side, the message of the crucified Messiah was an appalling scandal. To the Jews, it wasn't just a, an offense. It was an appalling scandal. So much so that Jewish Christian missionaries in Galatia avoid the message of the cross, pushed circumcision, and Paul said it's because of their cowardice to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. He laid them out pretty good in Galatians 5.11 and 5.12. We could get into the whole thing of, I wish they'd be cut off, but we won't. To Paul, if God chose the foolishness of proclaiming this message as the means of salvation, then he'd gladly be a fool. He even says it later in 1 Corinthians 4.10, I'm a fool for Christ. You're already reigning. You full preterist, you're already on your thrones. You're kings and queens. I'm the court jester. I'm happy to be a fool for Christ to preach the cross. Which has with it a resounding not yet. The word of the cross has within it a resounding not yet. But even now, but not yet. The Corinthians, some of the enthusiasts in Corinth wanted to say the not yet is gone and it's all here now and here we are. Finished product. While others, well, they just avoided the preaching of the cross to keep their reputations intact. Oh, and it will be intact. They will be highly praised. They may even have mega churches and high, they'll write lots of books and be very popular, very popular. But they won't be preaching the cross. 
they'll get out of this world with their reputations intact and then be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. I still fear being ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. We can always drift. Now, as for the epistle to the Hebrews, Coaster, that's K-O-E-S-T-E-R. I'm reading two commentaries right now. One guy got me so mad yesterday, I wrote a response to him. His treatment of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 was not good. Coaster's is pretty good, though. But he writes this. Despite the offensive quality of the suffering and death of Jesus, however, Hebrews gives it central place, arguing that it was, quote, fitting, fitting, or morally consistent for God to carry out his purposes in this way. Morally consistent with God. Fitting. Hebrews 2.10. The cross of Christ is entirely consistent with the long arc of the moral universe, which bends toward justice, as Dr. King said. But I say, yes, it does bend toward justice, the universally saving justice of God through the cross. The author of Hebrews certainly agrees with Paul's assessment of the word of the cross, as do all the writers of the New Testament scriptures. All emphatically agree. Moreover, whereas the epistle to the Romans leads off with the gospel of God about his son being the power of God for salvation, 1 Corinthians begins with the preaching of the cross as the power of God to those who are being saved. The word of the cross, also known as the gospel of God about his crucified son and risen son and exalted son. Hebrews makes much of the exaltation without really paying attention that much to the resurrection, but assuming you're going to think all about it. That's the power of God, that message. Meaning the power of God for salvation. So compare Romans 1.16 with 1 Corinthians 1.18 and you've got something. This notion is considered to be offensive to Christians even. Only because within the word of the cross... To those of us today who are being saved by the word of the crucified and exalted Christ, it is the power of God for salvation for all of humanity and for all of creation for that matter. That's where the offense crosses over into Christian territory. The notion is considered to be offensive to Christians and held by the intellectually Elite to be intellectually deficient thinking of the cultural elite of our time. But to us, it constitutes the wisdom that will last beyond this age when the wisdom of the sages 
of this age will have been shown to be folly. And when the fearful, eternal hell preaching of professing Christians is manifested to be shameful. Hell preaching, that is eternal hell preaching. Christians would probably subscribe to the notion of the epicenter of our go so great salvation being Christ and him crucified. They wouldn't argue with you. They'd sing about it. They'd hymnalize about it. They'd preach about it. That Christ and him crucified is the epicenter of our so great salvation, his death, his burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they would also say that there is no salvation without him. The problem is with the horizon of that epicenter. The horizon of that epicenter. They have a great problem with it with the range and the scope of its saving impact, there's the offense today. The range and the scope of its saving impact being universal is where the offense of the cross crosses into Christian territory, crosses into Christendom, and becomes an offense all over again. The cross is always going to be an offense and a scandal. It'll always be an offense and a scandal. Until this age is totally gone and the fullness of the age that was inaugurated with his resurrection has come. And that's not yet. There is much to be said in a doctrine of preterism, as it's called. But I believe that the AD 70 trajectory is missing from a lot of teaching today and should be there. But the misinterpretation of the AD 70 trajectory is also around. So we have to really fine tune that when, and if I teach a series on Hebrews, maybe call it Hebrews 2020, maybe I'm already garnering the ammunition for that, commentaries after commentaries and theology after theology for tackling that task. We will present an A.D. 70 trajectory that's in the New Testament and throughout it, but we'll balance it with a not yet theology, which is also correct. Now, I concur with the statement of Moltmann in The Coming of God, in which he says, quote, the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross is the restoration of all things. And I think that's entirely reasonable. That's the logic of the cross, the logos of the cross, the word of the cross. There's a logic to it. And he stated the logic in this way. Again, the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross is the restoration of all things. Take the theology of the cross, which was Luther's statement, he, used, he called it theologica crucis, the theology of the cross. Moltmann called it the theology of the cross. Take the theology of the cross to mean the word of the cross. Paul's word. Lagos to stavru. Likewise, we may take Lonergan's law of the cross as to be roughly equivalent, at least, with the word of the cross. And I'll reiterate this. Thesis 17, in his word, 
or his book, The Redemption. This is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again. Because divine wisdom, not the wisdom of this world, divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, that means by force or coercion, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. In distinguishing between false boasting, which we did all the way through Romans pretty much, to distinguish false boasting that is excluded from God's wisdom, or that which is based upon the flesh or man's own achievements, as Galatians 6.13 says, and to distinguish that from appropriate boasting, boasting that's fitting with the Christian life and with the word of the cross, Hans Dieter Betz, B-E-T-Z, the scholar who did a wonderful exegesis of Galatians, I'm only halfway through that, he says, what are the achievements, quote, close quote, the achievements the Christian can and should be proud of? He answers, they can only be his salvation. But this was not achieved through his own efforts, but through Christ's death and resurrection. And to show how inherent the law, the theology, the word of the cross is to the very nature of God, how rooted it is in the very substance of God's being. Fleming Rutledge fairly recently wrote this. The sacrifice of Christ was not God's reaction to human sin, but an inherent original movement within God's very being. It is the very nature of God to offer God's self sacrificially. That's the very root of the gospel and of Hebrews, for example. So it's not only modern theologians who have such respect for the word of the cross, and I'm grateful that that respect exists today. It's true also for the ancient theologians, called the patristic theologians. So consider the declaration of the patristic theologian Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. He said, I declare that the power and effectiveness of Christ's cross and of his death, which he took upon himself toward the end of the aeons, are so great as to be enough to set right and save not only the present and the future aeon, but also all the past ones, and not only this order of us humans, but also the heavenly orders and powers. That is the horizon of the impact of the cross grasped by Origen, whom the so-called church condemned later on for faulty reasons, for weird reasons. A church that wants to hold the power of hell over people so they'll keep on coming and keep on giving and keep on attending and keep on making a clergy wealthy would hate that message, wouldn't they? Be offensive to them. Wouldn't it? Still today it is. 
So here Origen manifests the profound understanding of the mystery of God's will and of Ephesians 1.10, which is the central verse that we're looking at in our mystery series. To us, in fact, and I have to be careful when I say to us, because what I mean to speak, I don't mean to speak for all of you, although I think I can speak for many of you. To us, the kingdom of God, I'll say it this way. To me, the kingdom of God itself is a realm mediated by the meaning of the crucified and risen Christ. It gives my whole realm of existence meaning. That's called salvation, incidentally. It's when you're in a realm that is mediated by the meaning of Jesus Christ, the saving meaning of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's a saving. I'm being saved right now in my soul, in my thinking, in my mind, because I don't rely on the wisdom of this world. I see common sense in many areas must be followed. You can't help it. can't say, well, it's common sense to stop at that red light, but I'm way beyond this world. Don't do that. Stop for the red light. Now, and even when it turns green, look around because people are generally idiots. And I'm not saying that harshly. I'm just saying that as a statement of fact and including myself. Because they sometimes are texting while they're well, I, can, I need to answer this. Are you coming at two? I need to answer this. Boom! You know, you don't, you don't need to answer anything in a text. Put the phone down. Now, that's just a little piece of advice. It's called common sense. I'll say it this way. The kingdom of God is a realm mediated by the reality of Jesus, the unique son of God. I'll just say it this way. It is a realm mediated by the reality that is Jesus, the crucified and risen son of God, in whom all the fullness is pleased to reside. The word of the cross, ha lagas ha tu staru. Take it away. You've taken away my heart. Our heart. Take away the word of the cross and you've taken away our soul. Our mind. Our strength and weakness. Our hope in perilous times. The word of the cross is crucial to the doctrine of the mystery. Not only crucial, but central to it. As we'll see more clearly as another lens drops down in what I call our cruciform, cross-shaped exegesis. 1 Corinthians one twenty-four. Paul goes on to say, however, to the called ones, that means those called to belong to Jesus Christ now, Whether Jews or Greeks, he says, Christ is both God's power and God's wisdom. Christ is both God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's so-called 
and so perceived stupidity, God's stupidity, that's what the world calls it, is wiser than humanity's so-called wisdom. God's so-called stupidity, the message of the cross, is wiser than humanity's so-called wisdom. And the and I'm doing this to give the sense of the translation. The so-called and so-perceived weakness of God is stronger than humanity's strength. So here is a matter of perception, and this is extremely important. I once in a while I pick up this little thing at the laundry thing or whatever they do your suits and stuff. And they have it. It looks like a bookmark. It's got seven points of wisdom on it. The first one is perception is reality. And I never paid attention to it. I use them for bookmarks and they're free. So then I start, I started thinking about that. That's not true. That's not real. That's not true. It is not true that perception is reality. We may or may not perceive what or who reality is. My, in other words, even any of our perception of Jesus, the Son of God, our perception isn't reality. The reality is Jesus. Your perception may or may not be in tune with that. Perception isn't reality. Reality is who and what you may perceive. It is the word of the cross, for example. The word of the cross kindles faith in people and communicates to them the perception of the true and the real. The eternally true and the everlastingly real. Perception is not reality. Reality is Jesus. I am the truth. I am reality, he said. Not boasting. Just fact. And blessed are those who perceive this. I may perceive the word of the cross to be dangerous nonsense. Is my perception reality? No. The word of the cross is reality. My perception is nuts. While I call the cross nuts. That means my perception of the word of the cross is really distorted and terribly wrong. Those who are really distorted and terribly wrong are amazingly assured about how right they are. (laughs) It's amazing. And I always have to be careful of that because that can be true anytime. It means that my perception of the word of the cross is really distorted and terribly wrong if I perceive it as foolishness. If I perceive the word of the cross to be the power of God and the crucified Christ to be both the power and the wisdom of God, then my perception is correct, but my perception isn't reality. Reality is Jesus, the crucified and exalted Messiah, in whom all things in the heavens and on earth are to be summed up. My perception may be correct, but it's not reality. Reality is what and whom 
I perceive. Reality is Jesus. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God, whether one believes this or not, or whether one perceives this or not. To those who believe, they perceive the gospel to be the power of God, and rightly so. To those who think it's foolishness, they remain perishing because what's perishing is not them per se, but the wisdom they rely on. And if you lean on it, you'll fall. As the prophet in one place said, leaning on the power of Egypt's like leaning on a pointed staff. Ouch. So to the called ones, and that is simply those who are currently believing. The word of the cross of Christ is rightly perceived. Faith is the proper perception. It's rightly perceived to be the power and the wisdom of God, just as to both Greeks and Jews who believe the gospel, the gospel is rightly perceived and experienced to be the power of God for salvation. And that simply means liberation from the enslaving tyranny of sin and of the fear of death because the word of the cross, which they have believed has caused them to know Romans 6, 6, that the now obsolete former self, who is worse for wear by being under the controlling allegiance to sin, that self was crucified together with Christ. So that the body of sin, that personified power called sin, would be rendered powerless to control our allegiance. So that in turn, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And that's what Romans 6, 6 says. That's what it means to be being saved. Moreover, the world or this present world order arrayed against God and his grace, the world itself as an enslaving zeitgeist has been crucified to us and we to this enslaving world. Galatians six fourteen. I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me, Paul said. On top of this, those that are Christ have crucified the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, the flesh as another eschatological personified enemy with its inordinate desires and destructive passions that will lead you and take you down a primrose path to a dead end with spikes in it. That's my additional commentary. So we no longer want to die like Elijah did under the juniper tree being chased by Jezebel's hit squad. Kill me now, Lord. I've been there. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. That's a testimony. I've been there. Take me out. I'm done. Take me out of the game, coach. I'm finished. If I'd have known I'd go through all this stuff when you called me, maybe I wouldn't have done it. You tricked me. I'm quoting Jeremiah now just to get off the hook. But we no longer want to die when we experience the sufferings of this present age because we have died. I want to die. You did die. And our life is hid with Christ in God. One day in my early 20s, I realized I have a problem with depression. I didn't know what it was. It was an immense sadness, low 
everything, negative view of everything, and just a sadness. And I was a Christian. And the, the cure, I had a therapist. It was the Holy Spirit. And he said, you died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. I held on to that. Between that and a healthy dose of B-complex, I was cured. <laughs> B-complex did help me. But anyways, that became my livingness. I died. My life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. We can confess with Paul, I was crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. So as Jesus said to his disciples when he spoke about going to the cross, let this saying sink deep down in your ears, into the heart. So let's just look one more thing here. From here, the apostle says, look at yourselves. Look at yourselves. The apostle appeals to the general character of the called ones. Like the word of the cross itself, they're considered to be unenlightened, unwise, they're not too smart, not too influential, not in vogue, not fashionably, ideologically tuned in, not woke enough, in fact, despised, dismissed by the cultural elite and the so-called ideologically informed. It's amazing how many ideologically informed people, if you actually interviewed them and asked them why they believe what they believe, just let them talk. They really don't even know what the hell they believe. They don't even know. And as Lonergan says, if a, person's, a person can be discovered to be a fool by just letting them talk, they'll reveal who they are. The woke of this age, and I'm not saying everything negative about that, but the so-called proudly woke of this age are dead asleep often to the values that will be determinative of the next age, of the coming age, which is already among us in the Holy Spirit. Those not woke to the word of the cross, in other words, march in lockstep with the instruction manual of the prince of the power of the air. He sets the beat, sets the tone, gives the instructions, and they will march in lockstep. They might even call themselves nonconformists when they're the biggest conformists that ever lived. Paul goes on in this epistle, the Corinthian epistle, to call upon the Corinthian saints to look at themselves and to see their own assembly. How God chooses the weak to defeat the strong and the foolish to confound the wise. Here's what he says in verse 26. Consider your church. It says klesin or calling, but that's ekklesian, meaning ekklesia is the church called out one. So klesin is those that have been called out. So I think it's right to tra translate this. Consider your church. Consider your assembly, brothers and sisters. And that among you there are not many who are wise according to the flesh. 
Not many power brokers, powerful. Not many high-born, where we get that word eugenic. Instead, God has chosen the stupid. You know what they are? The rubes and the woodchucks of the world, the hicks, the backwoods, the whatever color is presently hated trash, whatever blank trash. The intellectually deficient, the culturally unwoke, the fashionably out of step or out of date, the ideologically illiterate, and yet they were on the bleeding edge of something new, something lasting, something glorious. And I'm not speaking politically. I'm speaking Christologically here. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. Something astonishingly powerful and wise. But God has actually chosen the stupid (laughs) in the estimation of the world in order to put the so-called wise to shame and the weak and unimpressive in the perception of the culturally woke, we would say today, to shame the so-called strong and powerful. God deliberately, you see, chose the weak to shame the woke. He chose the weak to shame the woke. 1 Corinthians one twenty eight. God has chosen what the intelligent, it should be air quotes all over the place here, and the powerful of the world considers the insignificant and the despised. What is in their eyes even non-existent, they're not even existent to them. So when it comes to eradicating a part of the population or an ethnic cleansing, they don't care because those are already non-existent to them. Or the unborn. Do away with them. They're inconvenient, you see. They're just non-existent. They're non-existent to us. You don't know how far this country's gone and how far the mercy of God is holding this thing together. And how important it is for the word to be preached. God has chosen what the intelligent and we could say the intelligentsia and the power brokers of this world considers the insignificant and the despised. What is in their eyes even non-existent in order to bring or in order to bring into non-existence those who think they're really something. (laughs) So that no one will boast in his presence. It is entirely God's doing, verse 30, that you are in Christ. It is entirely God's doing that you are in Christ. It is entirely God's will and God's doing that you're even in Christ. It's God's doing if you have faith. It was kindled by the gospel and by the spirit. The primary manifestation of the spirit is faith. The spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 4.17. And so it is entirely God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus, in Christo, Jesu, who has become for us. He has become for us. 
And that means through his crucifixion and exaltation through resurrection, he has become for us wisdom from God, both justification and sanctification and redemption to boot. My translation. Precisely so that as it is written. Remember this, Jeremiah 9.24. The boaster must boast in the Lord. Want to boast? Boast in the Lord. And Paul said, I don't boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the way we boast in the Lord. So Christ Jesus has become for us these things, just as he has obtained a name above all names. How? Through his meritorious obedience, bringing us back to part part one, to the extent of death by crucifixion. The one who always existed eternally as God became something for us, became many things for us by first becoming flesh and then by becoming sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. En Christu Jesu. How may you ask, does this relate to the doctrine of the mystery? Please stay with me. One more verse at least. Verse one. As for me, he said, as for you, think about it. As for me, Paul, I didn't come to you with brilliant speech or philosophical wisdom, going back to 1 Corinthians 1.17, as I proclaim to you the mystery of God. It says marturion in the Byzantine text, the testimony of God. It says musterion in the text I usually go by, the Nestle Allen 27th edition of the Greek text. Is it mystery or is it testimony? Some manuscripts have to musterion to theu. Some have to muturion to theu. Either one works. Robertson says probably mystery is correct. I say that even testimony, if testimony is what it is, the testimony of God is the mystery of God. And the mystery of God is his testimony about Jesus Christ, his son, and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.6, and this will give you some interesting lines to follow in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.6 has testimony indisputably. There's no dispute. It says to marturion, M-A-R-T-U-R-I-O-N. They both look alike in the Greek text. But 2.7 on the other side has musterio, indisputably. The undisputed uses of testimony in 1.6 and mystery in 2.7 tend to make the words interchangeable. So in any case, Paul's next words are, for I determined to not know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. Jesus Christ and him having been crucified is the testimony of God and the mystery of God. Because the very way that God chose to make Jesus complete, as Hebrews 2.10 says, and to have him comprise all of created reality is through his endurance of the cross, which would be followed inexorably, inevitably, unstoppably by his resurrection from the dead. So let's complete this and we'll finish. 
What we see now, the completion of Jesus through suffering means more thoroughly in another series of teachings called Hebrews, which I'm intending to morph doing and living theology into, and maybe this series ultimately into, one series called Hebrews 2020. For now, 1 Corinthians 2, 3 to 5 expresses an inclusio of the section of this epistle. So if you're going to teach 1 Corinthians, you say a section starts at 117, ends with 2, 5, and I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. Why? Because in this message, God draws near. God comes right with you. He's right with you in this message. And my speech and preaching was not with persuasive philosophical arguments. If Paul wants to do that, he does it. He does it well. He can use rhetorical arguments and blow the opponents right out of the water, as we saw him do in Romans, and he does it again in Galatians. But when he came preaching and evangelizing, his speech was not with persuasive philosophical arguments, but with the demonstration of the spirit and power. I was with you in weakness because of the power of the spirit. I was with you trembling because of the presence of the spirit of the living God. So that your faith would not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Again, this goes back to 1 Corinthians 1, where we started. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to evangelize, and not with clever words, which would empty the cross of its significance. You see, the word of the cross is considered foolishness by those who are perishing, but to those of us who are currently being saved, it's the power of God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.